The Strange But True story featured on this podcast contains details some people may find distressing. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Chaya Samuel and things are about to get weird. Hello there, welcome to episode 17 of Things Are About To Get Weird. If you're a regular listener, you'll know the drill by now, but if this is your first time here, this podcast is dedicated to all things strange but true, and every Wednesday I tell you a different story, be it about a bizarre happening, an unsolved mystery, the weird and wonderful account of someone's life, or a true crime story. And true crime is actually going to be the focus of today's episode, as I wanted to delve into a case that's actually been on the very top of my list of ideas since the podcast launched. Just before I go any further though, a little bit of housekeeping. First of all, your ears don't deceive you, my voice is definitely a bit deeper today. I don't know what's going on, I feel fine, I think we're just going to have to roll with it. And secondly, I did want to say that I've given a little bit more thought to our Christmas special episode, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to compile some shorter facts and strange but true stories that have a festive theme to them, kind of in that bite-sized style of the books that I was obsessed with as a kid, but I would also love to include some of your stories in between too. So if you have any kind of weird experience story to share, be it an odd thing that's happened to you, a wild coincidence you've encountered, a crazy family story that you have permission to share, anything at all that you'd be happy for me to read out on the episode, please do get in touch. Of course, bonus points if there's a festive twist to the story, but it's not required by any means. Just pop me a note with your story at thingsgetweirdpodcast at gmail.com. I can't wait to read your emails. Okay, now back to today's case. This story was actually brought to my attention by one of our OG listeners, Jenny, so a huge thank you, Jenny, for this suggestion. I'm going to be telling you about the very mysterious and as yet unsolved disappearance of a young man called Russell Bowling. I know our last few episodes have been more historical, but this incident is a lot more recent, having taken place in 2010, and I did want to make one thing really clear from the outset. With cases like these, I'm always so conscious that I'm speaking about the very worst event in the lives of real people who are still out there searching for answers as to what happened to their loved one. Whilst yes, this is a very strange story, what I never want to do with episodes like these is just throw the information at you and say, wow, isn't that weird, and just leave it at that. At the end of this episode, I'll be providing details on how anyone with information they think could be helpful in this case could contact the relevant authorities, as long of a shot as that may seem. But I believe that continuing to talk about unsolved cases is valuable. Also, I just wanted to give a quick warning that there will be some references to suicide in this episode. So, with all of that said, let's get into the story. In the spring of 2010, 18-year-old Russell Bowling was a student at Bishop Burton College in the town of Beverley, which is located in the East Riding of Yorkshire. For anyone outside of the UK, this is an area in the north of England, towards the east coast of the country, around a 20-minute car journey from the city of Hull. 
Russell was studying bricklaying at the college and by all accounts he was flourishing. His parents spoke about how his self-confidence had improved massively since he started the course and although he'd initially had some apprehensions about attending the college due to some self-doubt and anxiety he'd previously experienced, he was now optimistic and enjoying the successes he was experiencing as he learnt. According to an article from the Hull Daily Mail, Russell had struggled at earlier points during his education due to some learning difficulties, dyslexia and a language disorder that he had, but he had shown real determination after enrolling at college and was doing very well. He was described as white with short straight brown hair, around 5 feet 8 inches or 173 centimetres tall and of a medium build. His record of attendance at his college was excellent and he was a very good student. On the morning of the 2nd of March 2010 at around 8am, Russell left his family home in the small village of West Ella as normal. His family recall that he was dressed in a black Ben Sherman jacket, blue jeans and black leather trainers and after setting out in his blue Renault Clio car, his family presumed he was heading to college and that they'd see him as usual that evening. Sadly, however, this ended up being the last known sighting of the teenager. It's thought that Russell never arrived at college that day, and when he failed to return home, his family knew it was completely out of character for him. The next day, things only became more alarming for Russell's parents and brothers when his car was found around 35 miles or 56 kilometres away in the car park of a popular nature reserve, the RSPB Bempton Cliffs. And it's from the very beginning of this story that strange details begin to emerge. There was an all-day pay-and-display parking ticket on the car that had been purchased at 11.30am on the 2nd of March, the day he went missing, but there was no immediate sign whatsoever of Russell and no indication of where he had been between leaving home at 8am and arriving at the car park at 11.30am. According to an article from the Yorkshire Post, a fingerprint initially thought to be Russell's was found on the parking ticket, but questions over the accuracy of this were later raised. The discovery of his car sparked an extensive search of the Bempton Cliffs area, which is tragically noted as a spot where people have been known to take their own lives. A search of a disused Royal Air Force bunker, which is also in the area, was conducted too, but despite the efforts of the police teams, not a single trace of evidence was uncovered as to Russell's whereabouts. Underwater search units, a rescue helicopter, the Coast Guard and police mounted on horseback all combined their efforts to comb the areas in the days following Russell's disappearance, but still he wasn't found. Public appeals were made for any information that could help police piece together the teenagers' movements on the 2nd of March, but nothing of consequence was presented to the authorities. As the months went by, the Bowling family grew frustrated at the pace of the investigation, in particular criticising the length of time that it took police to interview students and staff at Bishop Burson College to see if any deeper insight into Russell's relationships, my 
mindset or behaviour before he went missing could be determined. The family also raised concerns about the search of the RAF bunker, stating that as heat-sensitive cameras were used, they would have only been able to pick up the presence of someone who was alive, and that if Russell had been in the bunker but was sadly deceased, this search method wouldn't have been effective. As time continued to pass without any answers being provided as to what happened, the theories that prevailed ranged from the police's view that Russell had either taken his own life or passed away due to an accident, to his family's belief that a third party could have been involved with his disappearance. We're going to take a deeper look into the details of these theories, and as you'll see, the more we discover, the stranger and more confusing this case becomes. Now, when Russell left home that day, it's known that he had very little cash on him, and records showed that neither his debit card nor his bank account had been used in any way after he disappeared. Police didn't think this was odd with regards to his vehicle, as they concluded that the Renault Clio would have had enough fuel in it for Russell to travel from his home to the Bempton Cliffs without needing to stop at a petrol station. But his family disagreed. The day before he vanished, Russell had filled up his car with diesel, and then he and his mum Christine had taken a round trip to the East Hull Baths, which is an indoor swimming pool. Based on this knowledge, and the fact that the car had been driven from their home to the Bempton Cliffs the next day, the family decided to recreate the journey to see how far they could get without running out of fuel. What they found was that they were around 20 miles or 32 kilometres short, meaning that Russell would have had to stop at a petrol station at some point during his journey to the cliffs on the 2nd of March. This is significant for two reasons. Firstly, if he had stopped, he would have been captured on CCTV filling up the car and this could have helped provide some clues as to his movements that day. And secondly, if he had very little cash on him and he didn't use his debit card, how would he have paid for the diesel? On the first point, whilst the family told the police about their recreation of the journey and their belief that Russell would have visited one of the 71 petrol stations in the wider area, by the time the authorities finally looked into any CCTV footage, so much time had gone by that much of it was no longer available. So that's very frustrating, but it does leave us with the second point. If we take the family's journey reenactment as fact, which I personally believe we should, it does make sense to me, then who paid for the fuel? We know it wasn't via Russell's debit card, and although it is possible he had more cash on him than his family believe, I think it's also possible that he wasn't alone. And this forms the basis of the theory that the family have spoken about on several occasions over the years, and whilst it presents more questions than answers, it's definitely compelling. So, just a few days before Russell's disappearance, on Saturday the 27th of February, he had actually gone missing for a total of around five hours. He had left home in his car without telling his parents where he was going, which was very unusual for him. And when he returned, he was very secretive about what he'd been up to and who he'd been with. His dad, Roger, is quoted as saying, We think Russell had a secret friend, probably from Bishop Burton College. This is someone he met regularly, but we know nothing about them. Russell disappeared for five hours on the Saturday before, but we don't know where he went and that was very unusual. 
Why Russell kept this person a secret we can only speculate on. We believe it was this person who was with Russell on the day he went missing. We want this person to tell us how Russell's death came about. Did Russell suffer? Was he in pain or was he terrified? Upon further investigation, it was found that Russell had recently travelled to the Yorkshire cities of Bradford and York, as well as the town of Bridlington, but it wasn't clear to me whether those trips were on that Saturday or on separate occasions just before he vanished, but as these details came as a surprise to his family, I thought it was interesting. But even if Russell was spending time with this mysterious friend, what possible relevance could this have with the fact that he disappeared without a trace? Well, according to a series of 2010 Yorkshire Post articles, the Bowling family had been dealt a terrible blow after learning that Russell's father, Roger, was suffering with a degenerative brain disease. Roger's plan was to give his three sons their inheritance early in the form of a three-bedroom house with an approximate value of £300,000. Soon after Russell's disappearance, Roger stated, We think that day he has gone to meet somebody he knows and that someone has betrayed his trust. It may have been an abduction attempt to get a ransom that has gone wrong. If he jumped off that cliff, the police would have found his body. I can't believe he would either leave home or kill himself. Now, it does appear that police did investigate this lead, but that nothing came of it. However, as recently as 2019, Russell's parents spoke about how they remain convinced that a third party was involved, for whatever reason that may have been, saying, What really bothers us is that in the nine years since Russell disappeared, that person has not felt able to come out and say what happened. That makes us deeply suspicious of what happened. I totally understand where the family are coming from with this theory for the most part, and I do think it's possible that he wasn't alone when he drove to the Bempton Cliffs. But as for the financial motivation, I'm not entirely sure on this. Although honestly, the whole situation is so strange that I don't think it would be wise to totally rule it out. I am going to briefly touch on the theory that Russell may have taken his own life, although like his family, I personally don't believe that this is what happened. Now, in August of 2010, media reports emerged about a dictaphone recording made by Russell in which he talks about ending his life. Given the very mysterious circumstances around his case, I can understand why the media did run with this piece of evidence, but it appears that the truth behind the tape tells a slightly different story. Whilst it was speculated that the tape could have provided an insight into Russell's mental health struggles just before his disappearance, his parents actually believed that the recording was made around three years earlier, when he was experiencing a bout of anxiety during his final year of high school. They've spoken often about the huge changes and improvements in Russell's outlook on life between this time period and the time he went missing, even saying it was like he was a different person. However, there were also questions raised around whether his father's medical diagnosis had affected Russell much deeper than the family realised, and of course, it is possible that those closest to him may not have known exactly how he was feeling at this time. But for me, the fact that Russell's body wasn't found by any of the numerous specialist teams that searched for him both immediately after he vanished and in subsequent years 
it makes me believe that he did not take his own life. Not only was his body not found, but no traces of his remains or belongings were discovered either, aside from possibly on one occasion, which I'll come to later. But first, I want to talk more about the abandoned RAF bunker. There is something about this underground bunker that has felt so odd to me since I first looked into this story, and it continues to make me feel strange. In 2019, one of Russell's brothers, Andrew, spoke about the fact that Russell had actually searched for information about the bunker online on the morning he disappeared. He's quoted as saying, I personally think Russell had no interest in the cliffs. He wanted to look at the bunker, and I think that's where the tragedy happened. The fact he looked it up online that morning and then ended up there a few hours later suggests that's what happened. I think he went there with someone else. He may have suffered an asthma attack as there is supposed to be asbestos in there, but we don't know and no one has come forward. I think this basis for the theory alone is very compelling, but there's actually more to it. Russell's dad had spoken in 2013 about the bunker, and what he said was slightly contradictory to Andrew's later statement that Russell had searched for information about the bunker online. He said, Russell didn't find out about the bunker online. The police say he put a USB device into the computer and downloaded the information from the USB and they've never been able to find out where the device came from and it's never been found. Whether or not he gave it back to that person, we'll never know. That's the only way forwards. Who was that person? And if you're wondering what it is about the bunker that was such a draw to Russell, that's a whole topic in itself. His dad didn't believe that Russell was interested in the military history of the bunker, but more so a, quote, series of erotic pictures connected with the occult, which have been painted on the walls. And when I looked further into this, I discovered that it's completely true. The drawings are very graphic, and the site was apparently used as a location for some satanic rituals during the 1970s and 80s. Some of the drawings have pretty overt satanic and devil-related imagery within them, although it's very difficult to find any solid information about this side of things, bar rumours on random internet forums. I couldn't find any real evidence that the nature of what was in the bunker had anything to do with Russell's disappearance, especially because back in 2013, a second and incredibly thorough search of the bunker was conducted and was overseen by Russell's family. A team of seven men searched every inch of the site, looking for even the smallest shred of evidence that Russell had met with foul play in the bunker, or had ended his life there, and nothing whatsoever was discovered. On one hand, this meant the family were able to rule out this location and focus their efforts elsewhere, but at the same time, they were still without closure on what happened to their son. It must have taken such a huge toll on them emotionally. Cases like this are so heartbreaking because the not knowing must be nothing short of torture. I'm sorry to say that to this day, and I'm recording this in December of 2022, Russell's body has never been found. In 2019, there was an inquest into his disappearance and the assistant coroner, a man named David Rosenberg, did draw some conclusions that are, in my opinion, a little unusual. He did rule out suicide when giving his verdict, which I agree with, 
but he went on to suggest that it was likely that Russell somehow died in the sea off the East Yorkshire coast. He accompanied this by saying that they didn't know how Russell came to die, but there wasn't evidence enough to conclude that he could have passed away in the bunker. It was an open narrative conclusion, and Russell's family did take this opportunity to state that, sadly, they do believe that their son and brother is no longer alive, but they don't accept that he simply fell from the cliffs, and I'm with them on that. With all the resources that were deployed to search for him so soon after he went missing, I just can't see how not a single trace of evidence would have been found. There were no sightings of Russell on the cliffs that day, and to me it feels clear that his interest in the location was far more connected to the bunker than the cliffs. But the inquest aside, we're not quite done with the strange and frankly disturbing details that are intertwined with this case. Now, as I was researching the first point I wanted to talk about and I was making notes, the voice of my media law professor from my university days popped into my head and I suddenly realised that I might be venturing into a legal grey area. A lot of the media articles from later on in 2010 discuss something very, very bad that came to light during the course of the police investigation that resulted in criminal proceedings taking place against someone involved with the story. But as time has passed, and this is now regarded as a spent conviction, I'm not entirely clear on what I can say about it now in 2022 without putting myself at risk, so I will move on to the next points. So in May of 2010, Russell's family were asked to take an extensive look into whether any of his belongings may be missing from their home. This was due to a rucksack being found in Russell's car, which was mostly, if not entirely, empty. And before long, the family realised that the steel toe-capped boots he always wore for his college classes were nowhere to be found. Although this detail was odd and didn't make a lot of sense, it didn't become hugely significant again until that September. This is very disturbing, but something very, very weird was found on the banks of the River Humber, which is not far from Russell's home village of West Ella. A cyclist made the gruesome discovery of a dismembered human foot inside a brown steel-toe-capped boot. This came less than a month after another dismembered foot was found on a nearby beach, this time in a trainer rather than a boot. I honestly feel like I could do a whole episode about these bizarre findings on their own, especially as it was determined that the feet were not from the same person, but as it turns out, neither of the feet belonged to Russell either. I find it almost unbelievable that this should have happened at all, to be honest, but truly, what are the chances that one of the feet was inside a boot that was so similar to the ones that had disappeared alongside Russell? The wait to find out whether the foot belonged to him must have been absolutely agonising. I tried to find out more about who the feet did belong to, but there is very little information available on this story. It's truly incredibly weird. But believe it or not, this wasn't the only strange incident relating to Russell's shoes that would crop up as time went on. Some sources say that in addition to looking up the RAF bunker on his computer the morning he went missing, Russell also looked up a website relating to the village of Ravenscar in North Yorkshire, where his family had a holiday home. In 2012, two years after his disappearance, 
Russell's parents were at this holiday home when they found a pair of trainers there that belonged to their son. But as his mum Christine told the York Press, they were not just any trainers. She said, I am sure he was wearing the trainers we found on the day he disappeared. I think someone else had definitely been involved. I think he went with someone to Bempton and then got into one car and drove to Ravenscar. The trainers were found in a plastic bag in the garage, and when you remember the detail about his steel toe-capped boots being missing, it would make sense that he swapped one pair of shoes for the other at some point on the day he disappeared. According to the York Press article, the grounds around the Bowling's Ravenscar holiday home were searched after Russell initially vanished, but after discovering the trainers, his parents wanted a more thorough search to be done. When I read this detail, my first thought was, I wonder whether Russell could have gone to the Ravenscar house before he went to Bempton Cliffs, and could this account for the time that elapsed between leaving his family home at 8am and arriving at the nature reserve at 11.30am? So I did a few calculations, and according to my Waze app, it would take around an hour and 45 minutes at 8am on a weekday to drive from West Ella to Ravenscar, and then around 50 minutes from Ravenscar back to Bempton Cliffs. So there would have been plenty of time to still arrive at Bempton by 11.30am, even with time built in to spend at the holiday home. I'm not saying this is what happened, I'm purely speculating of course, but it would have been possible. So, with every baffling detail considered, what do I believe could have happened to Russell? In cases like these, I often look to what the family of the missing person have said, because ultimately, they are the people who are most likely to understand the behaviour of the individual best. I think back to all the true crime cases I've ever heard about where the police are trying to surmise what could have happened to someone or the actions a person could have taken and the family and the loved ones are right there saying, no, they just wouldn't do that, that is not in their character, that's not in their nature. I agree with them that I don't think Russell took his own life and I do think what drew him to the nature reserve was most likely the bunker. I really struggle to believe that he was simply involved in some kind of accident because I just think there would have been some trace of evidence to point to that possibility. A lot of factors in the theory that there was someone else with him make sense to me, and I do believe that someone out there has information that could help provide answers, but they have failed to come forward. I also understand why the family and the police do now believe that Russell is no longer alive, and I sadly do agree that this conclusion is likely. Something in my heart tells me that Russell did go to Raven's car, not just because of the trainers, but because of the search he made that morning too on his computer. For me, that trip would fill that morning time gap, but it still doesn't help provide any answers as to what ultimately happened to him that day or why. I've noticed that there are some suggestions flying around online that there could have been some kind of cult connection with the bunker, but when I've tried to look further into this, the sources have been sketchy at best. Personally, I think the suggestion that Russell could have somehow either joined or met with foul play at the hands of a cult that was allegedly active decades ago in that specific spot is quite unlikely. I'm not saying that the cult didn't exist or doesn't still have some loose connection with the bunker, but 
there's just no solid evidence about it. And I understand that people love a cult as an explanation for something that's otherwise unsolved. But in this case, whilst it's very weird and it leaves me with a lot of questions, the idea that Russell joined a secret underground cult doesn't feel right to me. I know this is a very small detail, but if that is truly what he was planning to do, join a satanic cult and leave the world as he knew it behind, why would he buy a car parking ticket? To me, it doesn't make sense. What I do think there could be something in is a link with the five-hour disappearance he had just a few days prior. Russell's dad was quoted straight after he went missing as saying... He has a speech and language disorder he has had since birth, and he doesn't always fully understand what people are saying to him. He can say, yes, all right, without really understanding the impact of what somebody is saying to him, so that makes him vulnerable because he could go along with something not really understanding what was happening. And all of this led me to form a bit of a new theory. What if Russell had been speaking with and meeting up with a mystery person, the same person who he'd spent time with in those hours on the 27th of February, and he'd arranged to meet them that day at the Bempton Cliffs? He could have driven to the Raven's Car house in the morning, using the small amount of cash he had on him to put some more fuel in his car for the journey, then swapped over his shoes in Raven's car and possibly spent some additional time there before heading out again. With it being a holiday home, I don't think it's out of the realms of possibility that he could have found some more cash in a drawer in the house and used it to add some more diesel to his car for the drive to Bempton. When he arrived and paid for his parking, he could have met someone who travelled in their own car and left the area with them. From what his parents have spoken about, it feels possible that Russell was perhaps easily led and may have found himself in a situation he didn't consent to, being driven away from the meeting place by someone with bad intentions towards him. They could have even had an agreement to explore the bunker together but never made it that far. Although I feel that the initial police investigation left a lot to be desired and that the family had to push and push for searches to be done thoroughly enough, I do wonder whether they were simply looking in the wrong place entirely. There was just no trace of Russell found anywhere around the location other than his car, and it could well be because he spent very little time there on the 2nd of March. As I say, all of what I've just speculated about is purely just a theory that's formed in my mind. We truly just do not know the truth. I hope so sincerely that one day someone who has been holding back crucial, critical information does come forward, or that someone remembers a detail that could be the gateway to finding out what happened to Russell. And on that note, if by some miracle you know anyone who was perhaps living in the area this story takes place in at the time, or you have any information that could possibly help in this case, contacting Humberside Police seems to be the most consistent advice given, as well as Crime Stoppers. I will, of course, be putting information and links to both of those in the show notes for this episode. I know this was a very, very heavy story, but I knew from the moment I read about it that I wanted to cover Russell's case. A huge thank you once again to Jenny for the suggestion. I am beyond intrigued to hear your thoughts and theories on this story. I truly can't stop envisioning all of the possibilities. It's just so wild to think that someone can vanish without a single trace. This story really does break my heart. 
I so hope that a new break does come in this case in the future, whatever that may look like. There were many articles which helped me research this story, so as always, I wanted to credit them at the end here. The Yorkshire Post covered almost every detail of this story and I found so much valuable information in numerous pieces from them from 2010, 2013 and 2019. The Hull Daily Mail, not to be confused with the other Daily Mail, was also incredibly helpful, especially several of their articles from 2019 and another from 2022. There were two great pieces from the BBC, one from 2010 and one from 2019, as well as an ITV news piece from 2013 and a York Press article from 2012. Other useful sources were the Doe Network, which is the International Centre for Unidentified and Missing Persons, as well as the International Missing Persons Wiki. If you would like to get in touch with your thoughts and theories, you can find us on Facebook, both through the main podcast page and also the private discussion group too. Just search for Things Are About To Get Weird on Facebook and you'll find us. On Instagram, our handle is at Things Get Weird Podcast and on Twitter, it's at About To Get Weird. As I mentioned at the start, if you'd like to get involved with the Christmas special episode, please do feel free to send your weird and wonderful experience stories to thingsgetweirdpodcast at gmail.com. A big, big thank you for listening. And as always, thank you for your ratings and reviews on Spotify and Apple Podcasts too. I set myself a little goal of getting to 100 Spotify ratings by the end of the year. I think we're on 79, so it might be a bit of a tall order, but if you do listen on Spotify and you enjoy the podcast, I'd be super grateful if you fancy giving me a quick little star rating. Until next time, take care of yourself and others and keep it weird, but the good kind of weird. Thank you.